it's going to be the same thing. If you get on one of these innovative trail systems, you're like, why would I go back to the everybody going both ways in every direction all the time when I have this? And people will start to really ask for these from their communities, their land managers. The, the, the profile of trails will rise. Um, I mean, it's rising now. The importance of trails, people are seeing it. And it's, it's a really, it's a great time to be involved in trails. It's a busy time. There's a lot going on. It's a complex time, but it's, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's such important work. Welcome to Trail Effect, episode 37. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. Episode 37 features Dave Weens. While Dave has been around the world of mountain biking as a racer since nearly the beginning, we chose to focus on Dave's current work as the executive director of IMBA. We discussed the path that Dave took to become the executive director of IMBA. The reoccurring theme throughout the show is the importance of relationships. We also went deep on more trails close to home and the importance of building great trail communities. Support for Trail Effect comes from Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Smith's is a full-service bike shop that is a retailer for Trek Bicycle Company and Salsa Cycles. Smith's also has a full line of components and accessories from Bontrager and other various companies. For more information about Smith's Bike Shop, go to www.smithsbikes.com. A special thanks goes out to Ben Wellenek of Mountain Bike Radio for supporting this podcast and to the people who have shared their time and knowledge. Without this, we would not have these stories to tell. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. So have you been watching the tour at all? You know, I just started. Uh, I paid attention to a couple flat stages. We watched last night, um, Susan and I, and then I watched this morning. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't have a complete understanding of what's going on. I just, you know, you pick up bits and pieces from, from Bob and Phil. And um, there's seems like there's no Americans that we've heard of at all. I'm sure they're there, but I haven't heard about any of them. And then is, is Vanderpool, is he planning to pull out and go to the Olympics and race both road and mountain? Is that kind of what they were talking about? Well, that was the story early on, but he's in yellow still. And he looked pretty strong yesterday and today. Yeah. I mean, how many World Cup mountain bike racers sit in yellow during the tour at the same time? Yeah, at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, they can do both. And yeah, it, mountain biking has been the transition to that before, but not, not the simultaneous uh, thing. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, obviously you raced when Cadell Evans was racing mountain bikes. And so he transitioned over and, you know, and obviously, you know, back in your day, Floyd Landis, you know, was a mountain biker is here before he went into pro road racing. Rasmussen. Yep. Yep. There were, there was definitely some, some guys that uh, made that, made that leap. Yeah. So it's, it's, I thought it was really cool to see Cavendish win not once, but twice. Oh yeah, that was so exciting last night. And, and Susan and I, I said, I think, I think he's had a bit of a drought because I don't follow it that closely. And then, um, it, yeah, then they showed he hadn't won for five years before that, that first one. And I said, I said, he, I saw his first win and he was super emotional. So I kind of think he had had a drought because I hadn't heard much of, from him for a while. So those, those sprints are insane. The jockeying in those final miles is insane. That sport is just nuts. Um, so cool to watch though. Yeah. He wasn't even supposed to be at the tour this year. They didn't bring him in until 10 days before. No way. <laughs> and he was going to retire at the end of last season, and his team convinced him to not retire. Right. Well, he sure looked good uh, last night and earlier this week. Yeah. So it's it's honestly, I haven't followed the tour a whole lot in the last couple of years. And just, uh, you know, I'm back into following it this year, and I'm glad that I am. So that's funny. Racing. That's exactly like me. Um, Cause I couldn't, I mean, all these names, I don't even recognize them. So we could just kind of getting to know them, but I've got a buddy who's, he just can't get enough road racing. He's watching road races from, you know, the first one in March all the way through. And he's like, did you see that? And I'm like, no, I didn't. <laughs> Do you know that? No, I don't. Yeah. 
Well, should we kick this thing off officially? Sure. Awesome. So today we have here on Trail Effect, Dave Weens. Dave is out of Gunnison, Colorado. Some of you may have heard of, him, heard of him before. He's a pro mountain bike racer, mountain bike hall of fame inductee in the year of 2000, I believe. Um, he's won a small race a few times or six times known as Leadville 100. And he's also the current executive director of IMBA, which is why we're actually talking today is to talk about trails and IMBA and what's going on in the world of IMBA. How's it going today, Dave? It's going great, Josh. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, before we get into IMBA, just briefly, let's talk about your story has been told a lot as far as your racing story, but let's talk about how your backstory kind of transitioned you or set you up to transition into local advocacy before you got into IMBA. Yeah. So I think my story as a mountain biker parallels that of, um, you know, numerous individuals all across the world. We got these bikes. They were amazing, even though they were fully rigid, 26 inch wheels, all that. And we took them out and depending on where you live, there were some, you know, a few pretty good trails, um, but there weren't tons of great trails. And so a lot of us that were sort of, I guess, wired in this way, started to you know do what we could to increase um, the quality and the quantity of the trails you know near where we lived and for me that was you know Gunnison Colorado so I got involved I mean the trail quickly joined the mountain bike as sort of one and the same because you know it really only takes two things to go mountain biking it takes great bikes and great trails and at that time we had great bikes I mean they were the best bikes you could possibly have and it was, it's always been that you, you match a, a great bike with great trails and then you have that fantastic experience. And not every place has those. And this happened in, you know, different parts of the U.S. It happened in Australia, it happened in Europe, where mountain bikers, you know, went out into the woods in different places and, and you know, tried to, you know, we knew it was fun. We knew what we enjoyed riding, tried to duplicate those efforts. And um, so really, it isn't as if I raced mountain bikes for a long time and then became interested in trails. I mean, they were pretty simultaneous. Obviously, I got into mountain biking first. And truthfully, when I was, you know, starting hearing about mountain biking as a teenager, I associated it kind of with backpacking almost. Like it was going to be uh, a way to, to go camping in the outdoors, uh, not even knowing that there was a whole world of mountain bike racing and, uh, and just, you know, going for, you know, shorter rides anywhere from an hour to, you know, four or five, six hours, obviously a little bit longer ride. Um, truly, I associated it with with almost like bike touring off road, and even did an early <laughs> an early bike backing trip with with you know wire paperboy baskets on the back of kind of a homemade bike. Um, that was actually 1982, so I was I was kind of flirting with mountain biking even before, but didn't really you know didn't have a proper mountain bike. Uh, my 1985 Specialized Stump Jumper I purchased right uh, at the, in the late summer of 1985. Yeah, that's a pretty classic bike for a lot of people to, you know, you know, that were able to get in on the mountain bikes in the 80s. Obviously, it was the first production mountain bike and it was even my first mountain bike and I didn't get it. I must, I must have got it in about 89. Had a U-brake down to the bottom bracket for the back brake. Oh, yeah. Yep. No, that my second stump jumper had that. My first one was uh, just regular canties, big motorcycle levers. What's kind of people won't really understand this today, but. Mountain bikes were expensive back then. And just as a, as a young person, you know, high school, college age, didn't have a ton of money, you know, typically working, you're working for, you know, four or five, six bucks an hour. Mountain bike was $800. And I didn't have that. You know, I had a kayak, I had skis, you know, we had to have our priorities. And I, I, I considered the mountain bike to be the elusive toy for a few years there where I was really into gear. You know, I worked in an outdoor store starting when I was 15. Uh, grew up skiing and got into rivers at a young age, was a river rat, uh, rafting, kayaking, all that, um, backpacking. And the mountain bike, I knew I knew it would appeal to me because I rode a bike as a kid. I loved riding, mainly for transportation and freedom. It wasn't as if I raced BMX or, or road racing or anything like that. There was no competitive element to it, but I rode for transportation and freedom. And I rode everywhere. I could go there on my bike. I wouldn't have my mom drive me. I, I remember hooking up my dad's golf clubs to my bike. Like he had one of those pull behind things. And I just had some parachute cord and I just rigged it all up and attached it to my seat post and lived in, you know, suburban Denver and where we lived was up in the foothills. So there were all kinds of hills. And at some point they came off and, you know, they kind of went flying past me until they did a, a nosedive into the ground. And then the handle hit, clubs exploded all over in the, in the road, but um, loved riding bikes. So I knew, I knew it would appeal to me. 
but it took it took at least a few years before I really was able to afford that proper mountain bike. And again, it wasn't that expensive, but at that time, five hundred bucks, thousand bucks, that was a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. And people weren't quite sure what they are, how they'd like actually work out, you know? Yeah, no, it was. It was, you know, they look they look amazing. They look so cool. Even then, if even if you didn't know what they were for, you were just like, oh man, that is the most amazing bike. And it's it's kind of the way I think gra- gravel bikes really grab people now. They're they're just such a cool bike. You know, when you look at them, if you're a cyclist or not, I think people are just like, oh man, that bike is so cool. Um, so it's it's been that way with a mountain bike for sure. Yeah. So as you um, were you involved with your local trail org then while through your racing career, or was it post racing that you got into your local trail org? We didn't have a local trail organization. Now, just up the road in Crested Butte, 30 miles away, was Crested Butte Mountain Bike Association. And they're um, the oldest mountain bike association on the planet Earth, uh, maybe even beyond. And they were always very active, but we didn't. We had Hartman Rocks, which is our local riding area. Uh, We were poking around. I mean, we're surrounded by BLM here. So as mountain bikers, we were poking around all over the place. There's some, some, you know, like Dr. Park is kind of halfway between Gunnison and Crested Butte. It's sort of no person's land as far as who's who's is it the monarch crest um and and the Connell divide trail and the colorado trail are you know 35 miles to the east up on uh, the Connell divide um but gunnison didn't have a, a trail organization and i always you know thought about it and i, I just stopped short of, of starting one and then finally in nine uh, 2006 so that was a long time no trail organization 20 years from when i started riding around here um the, the trails were really in, in disrepair at Hartman's between a really wet summer and it's a motorized area. So it sees some moto use. So uh, a lot of mountain bikers, uh, a lot of the trails had, had really suffered primarily from erosion because they weren't built sustainably. A lot of them were cow trails. They did a lot of grazing out there and people weren't riding some of the, the classic trails out there because they were just, you know, big ruts. So I just took it on myself to get a few people together and, and start maintaining trails. And, and Imbo was a big part. I mean, Imbo was the inspiration. Imbo was the guidebook. Imba told us how to do these kinds of things. If it wasn't for Imba, I wouldn't have really known exactly what to do. Um, but the roadmap was there from all the great work that that you know Imba and all the people involved with Imba had done for you know the past thirty years. So that's really how it started. And I formed Gunnison Trails in two thousand six, and that became our advocacy organization. Um, but certainly, Imba was the inspiration for that, and that the Imba books existed at that time, so we were able to learn a lot from those books. Um, some outdated information in those books now, but also some really timeless information too. So um, it was it was really very much needed here, and Gunnison Trails has thrived. Uh, you know, really quickly, Emma mentioned to me as I was talking that hey, I'm thinking about starting a local organization, and the one thing that the ED at the time, Mike Van Abel and, and Jen Dice, both told, told me is they said, Dave, our most effective local organizations have at least a part-time paid executive director, somebody whose job it is to do the trails. So. I really took that to heart and eventually in 2008 actually started a race out at Hartman's, um, the original growler, which um, within a couple of years was producing enough money to pay me a part-time salary and uh, provide us resources to, to pursue um, everything we wanted to pursue. And you know, now to this day, um, the growler is going strong and uh, we have a new ED. I'm on the board of directors, uh, a gentleman named Tim Kugler. And he's crushing it. He's finding fun- funding from all kinds of other sources. We're building new trail. Uh, we're maintaining trail. We're educating trail users. So um, that's you know that that was something that I did. That you know I'm certainly proud of, of Gunnison Trails, but it's the same thing that you know other individuals have done all across the, the country and creating their local organizations. And they're so valuable. They're so important. Uh, you know, if I think about the economic value of the trail system between you know Crested Butte and Gunnison, it's phenomenal. I mean, when people come for People are always saying, we got to get people outdoors, got to get them outdoors. Okay, what are they going to do outdoors? I would say seven or eight out of 10 people that go outdoors are going to use trails one way or another. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's, it's the gateway, gateway to trails. And, you know, as far as getting new um, people outdoors, um, you know, the, the, the lowest barrier of entry is hiking or running on trails. Uh, you know, there's nothing that you need for that. A pair of stiletto high heels, you know, or your work boots is, aren't going to work that well. Um, but if you've got some sort of sneaker, you know, you can probably go out there and, and um, you know, have a pretty good time. So trails are, you know, they're just, they're really important. They've always been important to humans in different ways. I mean, there, it wasn't recreational trails. Now it's, it's recreational trails, uh, which is much different than, 
you know, trails as, you know, pathways to places that were, you know, key to sustaining life. But uh, it's interesting how trails have been so, you know, so central to, to human existence. So you spoke a little bit about uh, becoming the ED of your local trail organization. What, in your eyes, do you have any advice for any executive directors out there that are especially involved right at the beginnings of being an executive director, like, you know, pretty, you know, maybe a trail org that's just starting to come online with, with getting that first paid staff or maybe two or three people, you know, I'm assuming that you had to wear a lot of hats. Oh yeah, absolutely. And hats that, you know, maybe you're not accustomed to wearing because there's a large administrative load, which goes along with that. Um, just the nuts and bolts of the finances and the money and things like that. But, you know, what I always tell people, and, and I guess if you have a little bit of experience um, in what you're doing, it's hard if you hired somebody that was completely green and didn't really understand trails or trail use, that would be a challenge, although they would probably bring some other skills to the table, but all about the relationships and um, your relationships with land managers, your relationships with your community of supporters, your relationships with the key decision makers in your community, whether that be the county commissioners, the city council, the other stakeholders in public lands and trails like the sportsmen, sportsmen and sportswomen, hunting community is very important. Uh, other trail users, if they're um, equestrians, we have a lot of motorized users around here. So we try to work really closely with um, their acronym is the GOATS and um, they're uh, a motorized user group. If there are trail runners, hikers, you know, you, you've got to have really good relationships and trust with all of those different or organizations and entities. And that doesn't happen overnight. So it takes a lot of hard work and a lot of, um, you have to be outgoing. You have to kind of actually find some of these people and dig them up. But a lot of times in some of the meetings that you'll attend, uh, you'll find a lot of these folks. And uh, I can't you know, emphasize enough how important the partnerships and the trust are. And you, know, you can't violate that trust either. Um, it's really important that you, know, you, you play, play straight ball all the time and you know, do what you say you're going to do and, and do it to the best of your, of your abilities. Um, and short of that, you know, any sort of book on entrepreneurship or, you know, running a small business is really helpful because that's essentially what it is. And if you have to decide, do you want to be a 501c3? Um, and IMBA, IMBA has a great uh, program called IMBA Local. So if there are organizations out there, fledgling organizations that are just getting started and they'd like to learn more about the nuts and bolts of, of you know, running and managing a local trail organization, you can reach out to, to us at IMBA, go to the website, check out the IMBA local page. There's different levels of affiliation. And, you know, IMBA, is, IMBA wants to help organizations, you know, all across the country and, and beyond. In any way that we can, whether they're IMBA affiliated organizations or not. Um, certainly, we love to have organizations affiliate with us. And there's a lot of different levels. I mean, one thing that I ran, ran into really quickly was membership processing is a total pain in the butt. We had a great board member, this guy, and I, I picked him, so I like to pat myself on the back. Um, Gary was his name, and he was fantastic. The first thing he does when he gets on the board is he, he you know, becomes a member. And then a year and a month later, he's like, Dave, I didn't get an expiration notice for my membership. And of course, you, know, you don't have anything set up. It's all kind of seat of the pants. And that's you know, a small example, but membership is tough. And we've got you know, spreadsheets and email lists and all these things. And, uh, and that's something that, you know, that's one aspect that IMBA can just take off of an organization's plate and just manage their, their membership. Form. We've got this chapter leaders dashboard, which from this dashboard, you can do so many things as far as communications. And um, I don't even know what, what all it would do, but I know it would have been very helpful to me when I was running Gunnison Trails to have access to something like that. So any of the aspiring or even, even, you know, what we're seeing, you'll see trail organizations that may have been very effective and then they lost a few people and they kind of, Maybe they dip down, they go into hibernation, they come back out. And you can find yourself with one of those organizations too. You know, take a look at the Imba local page. There's a lot of great resources there um, because it's not, it's no small, it's no small thing to tackle becoming a trail organization. It's a lot of work. So there's, there's a lot to it. For sure. So as you transitioned out of uh, the Gunnison trail organization, how you became a board member at Imba before you became the executive director. Yeah, yeah. So I was uh, I was asked to be on the board, and and um, I was you know really stoked about that opportunity just because I saw a challenging challenging time for for mountain biking, and I I knew I didn't have the answers, but I, I valued being part of the conversation. 
felt like I had at least some good things to offer. I uh, was only on the bo- uh, board for a year. And then, um, you know, Imba had some more challenges. And I was in a position then with what I was doing to where I could, uh, you know, change what I was doing and, and come on board Imba. And I wasn't necessarily envisioned as the, you know, the permanent ED. It was, I was someone who could, who could take it on and come in and hopefully work to try to, um, you know, stabilize the organization. And, you know, you know, truth be told, probably got us into even more trouble just because at that point, e-bikes were finally becoming a reality. And so there were some challenges with, with e-mountain bikes and the wilderness topic came up. And, uh, you know, we got sideways with, with quite a few mountain bikers. But ultimately, that passed. And um, one of our board members was uh, kind of in a similar position, uh, a guy named Kent McNeil, an entrepreneur to the core, uh, owned uh, a chain of bike shops in the Midwest. He came in and became the chief operating officer. And then really quickly, he's so smart and he's so good and, and he's so great at, at team building and management and administration that he became the CEO. And I retained the title of, of the executive director, but Kent has really um, been the the, the power and the, the brains behind, you know, rebuilding EMBA the way it's, it's going now. I just don't have that experience as a bike racer. I come from an org chart of one and, you know, it's hard for me to, to think beyond that. I'm not, I'm not young. And, uh, you know, I have, I have what, what I can offer the organization, you know, I really value, um, you know, how we position EMBA and what we work on. Again, the relationships are always really important to me. So how, how we interact with a lot of other stakeholders and trails, because let's just, let's face it, mountain biking trails don't exist in a vacuum. It's not just us out there. There's a lot of other folks out there. So I've you know fallen into a really good place uh, for me where I think I think I benefit the organization. Um, but Kent has just done a fantastic job, and he's put together an amazing team. So it starts with Kent, but you know. There were already a few folks here from before that are still knocking it out of the park. And then Kent's, you know, hired some new folks that are, that are just crushing it. So, uh, Imba's in a really good place right now. And, um, it's, a uh, I can't speak to what Imba was like to work at before because I came in at a time when, you know, we were, we were basically, you know, spiraling down a little bit to be perfectly honest. Um, but what he's built has been just phenomenal. And, um, the, the team is hundred percent behind him and his management style is, you know, open door all the time. Anybody can come to him with anything. And uh, he's, uh, you know, and he just, all he wants to do, just like the rest of us, is see mountain biking and trails be all that they can be. And that's really what it comes down to. There's a, you know, a group of us, uh, you know, beyond him, but that we know that mountain biking and, and trails make people happier, make people healthier, make communities more prosperous. And if everybody in our country would you know, get out on trails one way or another. I don't care if they're walking, running, or riding mountain bikes. If they did that, you know, two or three times a week, our country would be just a little bit better place to live in. So we're going to fast forward a little bit. Um, in 2018, or maybe it was late 2017, you guys announced the Trail Accelerator Grant Program. And that was semi-partnered with the uh, Imba Trail Labs. And I was fortunate enough to be able to attend Imba Trail Labs the first round in Bentonville. And then also my community in La Crosse, Wisconsin, was fortunate enough to be able to gain one of those Imba Trail Accelerator grants. From what I can tell, and I've talked about this with other people on the podcast and just, and just in general, there is no other trail planning grants out there, which is exactly what the Trail Accelerator grant is. And we found that having that planning done on the front end and getting assistance with planning has truly accelerated the process of getting trails built. Can you speak to it all? Some of the early days of like, well, how that came about, or what was, what was going into into creating that Imba Trail Accelerator grant? Yeah, you bet. And you know that was uh, around the time when I first came on, and I think it was a combination of of some folks who aren't with Imba anymore, and some who still are, who who came up with this program. And what it basically said was, if you have a tra- if you don't have a trail plan but you're sort of a trail champion and a visionary or a club or even an individual. And you're like, Hey, you guys, I've got this, this idea for trails and people are just like, okay, great. But if you have a plan, if you can, you know, hand them a PDF or, or email a file of a plan that shows exactly what you're trying to do, it has the, the effect of just moving the, the project along. It actually is 
a trail accelerator. So that when we fought, you know, we talked about it for a long time. We rolled it out. We had some fantastic support from Tom and Stuart Walden, you know, in, from the Bentonville area. Um, they gave us $250,000. We matched that. The, the grant is designed to go not to mountain biking clubs, but to municipalities, land managers, counties. It actually goes to the you know, folks that are used to building swimming pools and rec centers and ice rinks and, and, and paved trails and things like that. Um, to them, the, the sums of money that we're talking about, um, you know, they're not as daunting as they, they may seem to be to a club. But what we found was that on an investment of, of less than $400,000, we unlocked almost $8 million of funding around the country. And that was just by having those plans. And we, we feel like if you don't have those plans, um, you know, you're way behind the curve and, and actually getting your project to even move forward an inch can be really difficult. So the Trail Accelerator grant program has been wildly successful and we'll continue to do that. You know, planning and design, and we differentiate those two. Planning is, is what you put on paper and say so you've got your acreage and you know, here's more or less what we want to, what we're going to do. Design is where an individual actually goes out and walks the ground. And this is really important in trail development that a lot of, you know, sort of maybe uh, engineering firms or, or architecture firms, they'd love to design trails from behind a PC and have a map and put the trail here and there and all around. But as mountain bikers, we're like, oh, you missed that cool rock. Did you know there was a slab of something over here that you could have done? How about that 90-year-old oak tree right here? Those can only be found by exploring the woods. And this is, this is unique to mountain bike trail creation. It, it lends itself to, to walking and running trails too. Although walkers and runners, we're, they're not as plugged into the trail like a mountain biker. I mean, we love this kind of stuff. I was just riding in Buena Vista uh, across the Continental Divide. And whoever laid those trails out, they walked their butts off and they found all of the great stuff because it would have been really easy just to make the trail do this. But they, oh, no, we've got to go up here and get on this because then we can do. You know that. So we call that we call that part of the process design. And we've got some guys, you know, uh, Joey Klein is, is our designer who's been out there forever. And I mean, this guy is fit. You have to be fit. You can't, you can't, you know, if you get tired after an hour walk and you're not going to be a good trail designer, you've got to be able to walk all day and, and then really process and put routes together. And when you design something, you might get all the way to a certain point and then get blocked out and go, ah, it's not going to go. And you go all the way back. And so there's, you know, the bean counters will say, well, we, we can't afford that. And the mountain bikers are going, no, we actually have to be able to afford that because that's what's going to ensure that we get high quality trails. Because the first thing that a mountain biker is going to say if those trails aren't quality is, hey, you guys missed the mark here. Did you even see all this terrain up here that you guys didn't even use? Now, sure, there's times when the land manager will say, we've got wildlife habitat or something. You can't use certain areas. But when we have the opportunity to use a landscape, as mountain bikers and as trail builders, it's our responsibility to go through that terrain with a fine-tooth comb to make sure that we're, you know, taking advantage of, of every possible nook and cranny to make the best possible system. Because once you put a trail on the ground, it's there for a really long time. So Trail Accelerator Grant program is fantastic because it addresses those. It provides funding for trail planning and trail design. And that's what really gets the projects going. And, the, and it's just an element of what we call the, the trail building ecosystem, which is really the process that any community or entity goes through from a, a, a vision for trails and finished and maintained trails on the ground. And it's really difficult. And the analogy I like to use is if you have a pocket full of money and you want to start a bike brand, you can do it. You can have a whole warehouse full of bikes you know, within a year, whether you sell them or not is a different question. But you can have a whole pocket full of money and you can want to have a trail system and you may not ever get past that point right there because you've got to have access. You've got to have fun. You know, there, there's a lot of basically the access and the permission and the right location are, are big challenges. So that's really what we call the trail building ecosystem. And if you do get to the point where you, you have permission from a land manager to build trails, then that planning and design phase is a key part of it, too. And, you know, too many of the mountain biking systems and ours were like it here back in the day, they just kind of proliferated trail by trail. There was no master plan. It was, there's a trail. Okay. We finished that one. Okay. Maybe we'll go over there. And we've got a lot of, and now we're sort of, you know, saddled, if you will, with some of these, um, you know, systems from the past that, that aren't ideal. Maybe they're not sustainable. They're not as good as they can be. 
So that's where the, the planning is, is so important up front. And you can plan for other uses if you're going to have, um, you know, there's a lot of call for directional mountain bike only trails right now. And if we're going to have those kind of trails in the system, and if this system is going to be in a busy, busy area where lots of people live, we can't be surprised if we only build directional mountain bike trails when there's, you know, some guy with a latte and a poodle walking up the trail every morning because he lives right next to the system. But within that planning and design process, we can also provide other opportunities for other trail users as well, which is really important. And when you think about it, it, it makes as much sense. There's, you know, there's very few systems. If we do get the opportunity, don't get me wrong, to build a mountain biking only system, we're all in guns ablazing for or something like that. But more than not, we're asked to come in and build trails for a community. And a community has more than mountain bikers as users. And you know, more and more with, with what was already um, rising numbers of people on trails, COVID just, just knocked that out of the park. So now in so many places, trails are packed. And a lot of these were old heritage systems of everybody goes in both directions all the time. And you're mixing mountain bikers and runners and walkers and sometimes horses. And it's, you know, it's the Wild West in some places. So, um, you know, that, that's where planning and design can really come in and innovation. You know, we need to innovate. We've innovated at the trail level. Trails themselves have just fantastic features in the way they're built. Now, where we need to do continued innovation is how we put systems together so that everybody can, can use the system. And the, the, the goal is that everybody walks, runs, or rides away from a multiple-use system having just had a fantastic experience. Because the two elements of a great experience are... What actually happens on the trail and as a mountain biker, was the trail fun? Were we able to you know, have a great experience with the trail under our, our tires and the walker and the runner? Kind of the same, definitely different because they don't feel the trail like we do. And then what were our interactions with other humans like out there? You can have a great day on the trail. That, can, that great day can be completely wiped away if you end up having a conflict with another mountain biker or with a, an equestrian or a hiker. And so the more we can minimize those conflicts, through you know, some etiquette education, but also planning and design. We can make a system so that you're actually going to risk less encounters like that just because of the way the system's put together. So we're putting a lot of emphasis on, on that planning piece. And again, it all really it didn't start with a trail accelerator grant. We were planning long before that, but the, the awareness that, that this grant could actually accelerate trail development. And really, that's where EMBA wants to, to see more trails for more people in more places because we know how valuable they are to the people in the communities. Um, and you just look around and you look at the, the communities that have vibrant trail systems. And, you know, I bet if there were, if you did a study, you'd find that they're healthier places. People are more content that live there. Um, there's economic benefits to trails, whether it's tourism or as, as Northwest Arkansas first started, it didn't start to be a, a tourist destination. I think that just happened. And they're like, okay, this is cool. We'll take it. But we want to make a high quality of life so that people want to live here. We want to keep the people who are already here. We want to attract new people in businesses. And we want to use it as a recruiting tool. And it's been very successfully demonstrated there. And now you're seeing all around the country, people are, you know, if you're, if you're a trail person, regardless of how you use them, you're looking to live close to trails. Um, and that's a good segue, I guess, into, into more trails close to home. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to back up a little bit, though, because you just dropped a ton of knowledge that I want to unpack a little bit. <laughs> three, three different topics we're going to hit on with, with what you just talked about. One is the access and the money. Two, two will be, the, uh, two will be the, the, the directionality and how trails function to get a better user experience. And then after we're done with that, we'll roll into the uh, quality of life and more trails close to home. But, you know, backing up to your access comment, I've said for years, you know, especially living in the state of Wisconsin, um, those who don't know the state of Wisconsin from a state perspective is not super friendly to mountain bikes. Um, There's not really any mountain biking in any any state parks. There's actually one state park that I'm aware of. And your, you know, your lead designer, Mike Repiak, will tell you all about it. Um, Him and I are pretty close and we know the, the issues that Wisconsin faces. He, you know, he used to work for Wisconsin DNR before coming to IMBA. My full-time career is working for Wisconsin DOT. Um, so I've, and I've said, I don't want money. I don't need money for trails. I need access. We get the access. We get the planning. The money will follow. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's no question. Access is um, the biggest challenge in, in a lot of places. 
that that's where those relationships really are important. Um, that's where your partnerships are important. And one thing I think that's it's changing for us now and that, that's positive is there's a ton of kids riding mountain bikes now. Kids are loving riding mountain bikes. And, you know, if, if you've got a community meeting and you're going up in front of, you know, a tough board of county commissioners or DNR or somebody, you bring a bunch of kids in, uh, Little Bellas, NICA, all of the youth development programs that are going and or, you know, and there's there's heartwarming videos out there. I mean, mountain biking is are changing a lot of people's lives, but it's changing kids' lives in a really big way. And it's a really healthy, awesome activity. Um, but but again, I can't I can't you know, emphasize enough how important it is to build the coalitions of supporters. And if you go in just as the mountain bikers, and sometimes you can get the ear of a community and you'll start down that road. And then what, what we've seen happen a few times is at the 11th hour, another group will come in and, and you know, start lobbing bombs into what was going on, um, whether they're, you know, wherever they come from. But if you bring, if you have them from the beginning, you're a lot less likely to get derailed late in the process. And, and so that is, you know, when you have a piece of green space in a community, it, mountain bikers might look at it one way and value it, but there's other people looking at it in a different way and valuing it as well. And that's why if you can say, hey, you know, this, this could potentially be an amazing asset to this community, what are all the elements that we'd like to see happen in here? Um, so you, you get, you bring the, the walkers, the bird run, the uh, bird, bird, runners, bird watchers, trail run, equestrians, if, if they're, if that's part of it. In some places out here in the in the West with more Pokemon, we've got motorized users. We share a lot of trails with with motos. Um, that's that's really, I think, the the successful access stories that you see are when you bring in a strong coalition that works together. The last thing a land manager or a county commissioner or any elected official or decision maker wants is a, a battle happening right in front of them. Okay, so if you come in and you've already kind of had your 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 tough conversations with these different organizations. And then you guys come in sort of unified. And, and here's the thing, as a mountain biker, and, and humans are just kind of like this, we don't like to compromise a whole lot. And, but you almost have to. You're never going to get everything that you want. And if everybody compromises a little bit, then you end up with something that is actually, you know, has a much better chance of succeeding than if, um, if you dig in and you have to have only what you want and you're not concerning yourself with, you know, the needs of other people in your community. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we, you know, again, we, we've had those access issues here on the cross. We've seen some bombs lobbed at the, at the 11th hour, um, even at the, you know, the, the trail system we built with the trail accelerator grant, we had a lawsuit against that, you know, yeah. we had that. It didn't, I mean, it didn't come to fruition, thankfully, and we were building and it's done and, you know, but it, you just never know. And it was just through, it was literally through a super vocal, super small group of people, you know, we, cause we included all the, all the main players. And we had, we had the city, we were at the city council meetings. We, we brought the NICA team wearing, wearing their jerseys, you know, so they could tell that these weren't just kids at a, at a city council meeting. They were there for a purpose. Well, and Josh, it, it seems like that isn't always going to happen, but that's often going to happen. And we're almost planning for it now to where you've dotted your I's, you've crossed your T's and still you're going to get those. And you know, some people call them NIMBYs, not in my backyard. There's some people that are, they're just by nature, they're just against everything. Any sort of change, they're, they're going to try to rally. So you almost have to expect that, that it's going to be tough whenever you're talking about sort of these common spaces and traditional uses and change. Um, it can be a really big challenge. But, you know, through thoughtful planning and design, in most places, there's room for everybody. Um, to, to figure out, you know, we can have some sections that are maybe put away for wildlife and there's nothing going on in there. And then, you know, we can plan for great walking and running and plan for fantastic mountain biking. And that's really <clears throat> the goal is that we all have those, those great experiences. So understanding the concept in the trail world, some academic coined this years ago, it's called goal interference. And that's really the, the, what the difference between the hiker who walks out there and what they're after compared to the mountain biker who pedals out there and is either an XC racer looking for a workout or, you know, a gravity rider wanting to test their skills on some really hard trails, um, you know, whatever it happens to be, they don't see things the same. You know, the mountain biker thinks the hiker, you know, I don't know, I'll give it. The hiker looks at the mountain biker going, this isn't a gymnasium, but there is no, there is no right or wrong answer. It, it, it's whatever it is to the people that are there, as long as 
you know, it's, it's relatively, or, uh, you know, an appropriate use. Um, and mountain biking has been around for a long time. And, and, you know, one of the hallmarks of mountain biking is that it's a faster sport. That's the challenge with other forms of, of trail use is that we're quiet and we're fast. And if we can get that, you know, if we can reduce the opportunities for that to be an issue with directional mountain biking only trails, uh, educating mountain bikers to know, and the, the analogy we like to use at IMBA right now is, and you in Wisconsin, you'll know this, the no wake zone on a lake. You know, the no wake zone is that's where you think your speedboat doesn't go full power. You can't make a wake. So every once in a while, you're going to all of a sudden hit a trail. It's essentially a no wake zone. You're going to slow down, dial it down, get through it, wave to the people, get off, whatever it takes. And then all of a sudden, oh, boom, you're back on a directional trail and you can let your brakes go and, and you can have a blast. So, you know, there's work to do and that, that work will never end because there's going to be a constant, you know, door of new users coming into the sport. Uh, but we all need to do our part to, to really try to put ourselves in the in the shoes of other trail users and every mountain biker who gets grumbly about, you know, hikers and whatnot, please borrow a couple five-year-olds and go for a hike with these kids on a busy mountain biking trail. And you'll have a whole new perspective all of a sudden uh, on what it's like um, for some people out on the trails. It can be a real challenge. Yeah. And it's important to get those five-year-olds out, even if it is hiking, you know, we want these kids outside. Absolutely. And, and if, if you, if your five-year-old can't run up and explore the trail ahead of you, because you're concerned about, you know, what the oncoming, you know, traffic is going to be like, then that's a, that's a, that's a bit of a bummer, but you know, it, it's part of our world. I mean, trails are crowded and they're not perfect, but at IMBA, we, we can envision much better trails. And I think if, and in some people, some places have already done it. I know up, up in your neck of the woods in Minnesota, a lot of directional trails, a lot of good innovation up there. A lot of more mountain biking specific areas, which is great when you can have those. Other places where you have to share more like Draper City, uh, Corner Canyon. We use this example a lot. Joey Klein of Imba designed it 10 or 12 years ago. I mean, he was way ahead of his time. Roughly a third of it is hiker horse only. And there aren't many horses. So it's mainly hikers and trail runners. Third of it is mountain bike only directional with some fantastic trails. And the other third is, is more or less the no wake zone, you know, mountain biking directional on climbs that get them to great descents. Um, so that everybody, you know, understands how to navigate the system, where they're going for the experience they're looking for. And that's a 50 plus mile, um, trail system and, and expanding. And one that we use as a model, um, for what, what can happen in a lot of places. And I think as more and more of these systems come online and people get to, get to know them, it's like any shopping experience where the quality is there. It's going to be the same thing. If you get on one of these innovative trail systems, you're like, why would I go back to the, everybody going both ways in every direction all the time when I have this and people will start to really ask for these from their communities, their land managers, the, the, the profile of trails will rise. Um, I mean, it's rising now, the importance of trails, people are seeing it. And it's, it's a really, it's a great time to be involved in trails. It's a busy time. There's a lot going on. It's a complex time, but it's, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's such important work. Yeah. And, and another advantage about, of directional trails is, you know, when you travel, you don't necessarily have a local to ride with, you know, you don't necessarily know which way to go. And I don't, I'm sure you've done it. I've done it where you get on a trail and you're like, you know what, this thing would be way better if I was going the other way. No, absolutely. And when you have that, yeah. When you have that directional trail, you have that, you basically have a guide without having a guide. Yeah. Oh yeah. I know you, you know how to ride the system. No, it, it makes a lot of sense. And you're, you're right. We, Susan and I went to Durango, dropped one of our sons off at school and, we rode up Star Wars. <laughs> Our son's like, you rode up Star Wars? Like, we didn't know. <laughs> we never made that mistake. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. They got a trail named Star Wars out there. We have, we have a trail called Vader and a trail called Jedi and a trail called Obi-Wan, all built by Rock Solid here in Lacrosse. So you've taken advantage of the Star Wars stuff too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Star Wars is great. Yeah, so let's let's roll into quality of life and more trails close to home. You know, I, it's it's interesting. Um, I I was saying it a handful of years ago, and you know, and this was because of Bentonville. My first trip to Bentonville was in 2016. It, it wasn't because of the Imba Summit, but it ironically landed on the same weekend as the Imba Summit. the The light bulb went off when I rode the back 40 for the first time, and that was, this is what I've had in my head that could be done where I could literally have, you have all this unusable land between these houses because it's steep. You can't build on it, but you have trails like literally right out of everybody's back door and you're crossing all these roads with proper crossings to get across the roads. 
the dream is real, you know, and, and that is a quality of life that they've afforded themselves in the Bentonville and Bella Vista area, you know, and, and how, you know, you guys have really pivoted towards that more trails close to home. So let's talk about that and how that really adds to the quality of life, but also adds to the quality of workforce for those communities because employment is super difficult these days. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, first I'd like to just, you know, give a shout to the, everybody that came before us at IMBA the last 30 years, because while it wasn't called more trails close to home, it essentially was more trails close to home. I mean, as mountain bikers, we love to go to Moab. We love to go to, you know, all these places, you know, Pisgah that are, that are exotic, but 99 rides out of a hundred are where we live. And we'd rather not have to put our, our, you know, bike on the car, or if we do for a very short distance. So trails close to us, that's our bread and butter because mountain biking for the most part has been a bit of a fitness sport. It's hard to take mountain biking off the shelf once a month and go out and have fun. So as mountain bikers, we like to ride three, four, five times a week, six times a week. And the only way that's going to happen if you have a job and you have a family and all those things is if you have some trails relatively close by. So a lot of the trail building that happened around the country, you know, unauthorized or not, didn't happen out in the hinterlands. I mean, a few people, I think, have gone out and built trails in the middle of nowhere, and they just they disappeared because nobody rode them. Mountain biking trails need use. That's what makes mountain biking trails good in a lot of situations, is uh, it needs a certain amount of use. I mean, some private developments have tried to have private trails for a very small number of houses, and they don't work. They just disappear. So uh, around here, it was Hardman Rocks, and it was Signal Peak. It was the areas that are really close. Crested Butte, there's great trails surrounding the town. Sure, there's all the backcountry epics that are way out there. But now, most of the people never get very far from home, and they're riding those trails. So um, it just takes on different forms in different places. You mentioned the Back 40. That's a perfect example of you've got unbuildable ravines. You've got you know, some, some you know, places where you just simply can't build that is perfect for trails. And you figure out how to cobble it together. And you've got road crossings, and you've got the schoolyard, and you've got you know, whatever it is. And we've all, you know, if you have the, the eye and the mind for this, I look at a place like Pocatello, Idaho, and I'm just looking at all of this open space that runs throughout the city going, this place could be so amazing because then that gives way to public lands right outside of town. You have all of these cool connecting single tracks within town. And, you know, there are certainly some places in the country where trails just maybe aren't going to be that, that possible. But even in the Midwest on, on old golf courses that are no longer being utilized, there's a big chunk of property with a with with a building with restrooms and a parking lot. It's custom made for events like NICA races and NICA practices, and you've got all this green space, and it's close to where people live. And that's really what what makes it. I think that people become happier, healthier, and communities more prosperous is because people get the quick hits anytime they want them before work, at lunch, after work, and maybe in their minds they're thinking about they're thinking about Whistler or Crested Butte or Pisgah, but they're going out and they're doing laps on their local trails and they're loving it. And, and it, it is, it's, it's so important from a lot of different perspectives, but again, you know, the Waltons and what they did in, in Northwest Arkansas, you know, very specifically saying trails are going to be a key element of creating quality place to live and quality of life. And, you know, they're still doing it to this day. I mean, they continue to build down there. And they're pulling people in, they're pulling businesses in. People are like, this is a great place to live. I can ride my bike year round. I can be challenged. I can ride different trails all the time. Uh, not every place can, can be like Northwest Arkansas, but there are a lot of places in this country to have the, the, the lands for those kind of trails, whether they're federal public lands or county land or, you know, organizations like the Trust for Public Lands who, who you know, buy private lands and then, you know, basically conserve and preserve them for recreation. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of interest in, in, in trails and more trails close to home. And I don't even think we've heard too much from the medical industry yet on a doctor prescribing three days on the trail, two days on the trail a week, you know, just that hill, just get to the top of it three times a week and you will be healthier. Um, and then when people, that, that's different than going to the gym and watching you know, cable news on a treadmill, you're outdoors, you're seeing things that you don't always see and you're meeting people that you didn't know. And, and it's just, it's a, it's a much better experience. And whether you're walking, running or riding bikes, um, it, it can, it, it'll, it'll change your life. And it, it can, it can, the more trails we have, and I, I do, you know, everyone wants to measure everything. We've got to have metrics. You got to prove everything. 
That's great. I, I understand that. But I do believe that for the most part, build them and they will come applies to trails. And if you don't have trails someplace and you've got, you know, a, an area where you can build them and you put them down there before long, you're going to have people using those trails. And all of a sudden you're probably going to have a bike shop pop up because you got mountain bikers there. So. Yeah. I did an interview a few shows ago with a, with a guy who got a hold of me interested in doing a podcast together. He put, how was it? Five or six miles. It was in Brunswick, Maryland, five or six miles on like 50 acres right next to a school. And, and that right there, when he got a hold of me and told me that I'm like, yeah, we got to do this interview because it just goes to show you don't need a huge chunk of land or a state park or whatever people think you need to do a trail system. That can be a big impact for the community. Particularly for mountain bikers, because we don't, we don't mind, like we're not going anywhere. We're riding the trail in front of us. We, we don't have a destination in mind. And if we happen to circle back and get really close to where we just were, we're good with that for the most part, especially when we, when we're in an area like that, where that's all we have. I remember, you know, Texas doesn't have tons of public land, so they've got some private, um, private trails and they've got them on some pretty odd shaped parcels and some pretty small parcels, but you've got an eight or nine mile race course. Um, I remember racing one in, in Warda, Texas, and we got close to ourselves a lot of times, but if you have that near you and you just, you enter it at whatever point and you ride the, the lap, I mean, that's a huge, that's a big deal. Um, and with all these kids riding and looking for places to, to practice and looking for event uh, competition venues, you don't, you don't need it. It's great if you have, sure, if you have 1,000 or 5,000 acres, but you don't need those huge parcels to have a quality trail system. And it gets people outside to appreciate nature better too. And that's part of the deal as well. Well, and then, and then what's on a lot of mountain bikers' mind is that trip to Whistler or the trip to Pisgah or to Kingdom Trails or wherever. And um, there's people that are, that are building those places or Bentonville, you know, Bentonville's become a destination. So I know from the upper Midwest, you guys love to get out of the cold and go down to Bentonville in the late fall and winter and early spring. And so there's that much more reason to, to, to always say more trails close to home. Yes, people do live in Moab. People do live in Crested Butte. And, you know, that, that's their more trails close to home it just happens to be, you know, iconic, you know, destination trails. but. There are locals in, in you know, Park City, Utah, places like that. So it's, it's cool to see a place develop that will never necessarily be a destination, but has great trails for their community, but also see some of these destinations that are, that are just doing magnificent things too. And so as mountain bikers, we're really fortunate to have the options that we have um, because how many other sports, I mean, skiing, not every town has a ski area. But, you know, every town could have a trail system. And I remember riding this little trail system up in Wyoming. And it took me an hour and a half to ride everything once. It was real quick. It wasn't enough. I wouldn't make it a destination. But when I was driving by, you know, to park my car and hop out and, and ride this really cool trail system. And, you know, that was awesome. And a lot of communities have that now. And with Trail Forks and MTV Project, you can find these places and, you know, for the most part, put together a, a decent ride. Maybe, like you say, not always knowing the, the right direction to go for the trail. but. Uh, it's, it's neat. I mean, there's a lot of great opportunities, uh, all around the country and the world for, for mountain biking. So you've had the opportunity between racing and, and your career now with Imbo to do a lot of traveling into different trail communities. What are some of the kind of the key points that you would like to see or you think is important to have as ingredients for a good trail community? Obviously trails, one of them, but you know, what, you know, what do you, what do you think kind of, I guess you could say almost that Imba Ride Center, you know, type of standard? Well, we know what people like. They want, they want a turnkey experience as far as, you know, what you said. You don't want to, and then we've all had it. I've had it recently where, you know, you, you kind of have the apps, but you don't really, the whole ride isn't presented that well. You know, you want to have that, that turnkey experience on the bike, know exactly where to park, um, have a good idea how to get into the system and, and which turns to make to get the ride that you're looking for the quality, the, you know, the difficulty of trail. But then beyond that, it's, it's the camping. If you're a camper, it's the accommodations. If it's that it's the, the restaurants, it's the coffee shops, it's the, the bike shops, it's all of those amenities. It's um, ancillary activities. If that's your thing, if there, if there are museums and the Wallens, you know, they didn't just build trails, they built trails and a whole bunch of other stuff, including amazing museums. There's natural attractions to see. Um, so the better you can put together the whole package and make it turnkey for people to access those elements, that's really what we're looking for in a ride center. 
And sometimes there's the whole family doesn't ride. And so if there's something for the non-riders to do, that's, you know, that's even that much more important too, because maybe, maybe mom loves to ride and, and one of the kids and dad and the other kid, you know, they, they need to do something else. And if there's a, you know, a water world type of, a, you know, swimming park or, you know, whatever it happens to be, that's really important too. So truly for the ride center designation, we're looking at, um, you know, all of those different elements and how accessible they are because they have to somehow be packaged in a way so that people can figure it all out probably with their phone and not, not have too many questions that are, that are unanswered. Uh, where is the trailhead? What direction do I go? Where can I get coffee? And then with, with mountain bikers chiming in with reviews and things like that, you can kind of start to pinpoint which restaurants you want to, you want to go into that will you know, serve the fare you're looking for, or have the atmosphere you want, which are the, you know, the coffee shops that, you know, might be, uh, you know, just appeal more to a, a mountain biking demographic, if you will. Yeah. And with your travels, is there a community or maybe a couple communities that stick out to you as ones that you've either gone back to because of what they've offered or that you want to get back to because of what they have to offer? <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm different. And, and my wife, Susan, we're the same. You know, we're not as interested in that turnkey experience where everything's laid out for us. We're, we're, we're going off the, off the beaten path. We like old school single track that, you know, doesn't always work out. And so, um, you know, there's a place just down the road, a couple hours that we've gone back to because for us, it's more adventure and exploration, but certainly Northwest Arkansas is a place that she continues to ask me about because she's interested because I think that maybe I drag her on some of these adventures more than, than she goes willingly, although she's a willing participant, you know, always, but Benville's phenomenal. Northwest Arkansas is phenomenal. I mean, you can go down there. I don't think you can ride it all in two weeks now. Oh no! It maybe a month. Dil- Duluth was really cool. Some friends of ours just went to Pisgah. What's interesting is, as much as I raced, when I was racing, we weren't racing in trail meccas. Uh, we were racing. We didn't. We didn't race in great, you know, trail venues all the time. So, uh, you know, Moab. We've had a lot of fun going back to Moab now with some of the the new systems that they've created there in the last ten years that that we weren't familiar with. But, you know, that's what's so cool about mountain biking, I guess, is you can go for that sort of, you know, really um, modern type of, of, of trail system with all of the amenities and really immaculate riding. And, you know, I, I'm not a hucker, but some people, they, you know, they want to they want to jump their bikes a lot. And, you know, a place like Bentonville, you can do that. And, and then if you're not in that, you can just roll right past it. It's really cool. But other people like like it a little bit more raw, maybe a little more like it like it once was. And there's still plenty of that out there and everything in between. But, you know, one thing I think that's really important is for mountain bikers just to step back from what they want and and recognize that it's okay to have the whole spectrum there. Because the other thing we say about a community, whether it's a local community that's never going to be a destination or the most amazing destination in the world, hopefully you've got a lot of family-friendly greens and you've got, if you have the terrain, you've got some hair-raising double black diamonds that not everybody will even consider riding and everything in between. And, you know, be good with, it's actually really difficult to make beginner trails in a lot of terrain. And true, truly, this is what we have, this is what mountain bikers have kind of given to us, and I'm one of them. We created the trails for the most part, you know, not, not recently, because now we've got the trail building industry and more planning. But say starting 10 years ago and earlier, we built trails that were generally hard and harder. <laughs> and that was it. And so if you're athletic and you get into mountain biking, you were, you were good to go because you kind of, you know, you could just jump in there. But for other people, they'd be like, oh, mountain biking, this is great. And they go to, you know, someone says, hey, come ride with me. And they take them on these hard and harder trails and they had a terrible time because they were just a little too hard for them at that point. So having everything is great. And, you know, sometimes... Um, you know, Imba gets accused of dumbing down trails or just building sidewalks. We do. We build, we can build great family friendly beginner trails. The trail solutions guys have also built stuff that I won't even ride. You know, I'll look at no, that's that's for somebody else. So it's important to know that mountain biking is a is a whole spectrum of user experiences. And to be a really solid place to ride, you should try to have every box checked if you can. 
Oh, for sure. That's having green trails where, where we live is, is the most difficult thing to do because anything that isn't steep is built on, you know, with, with other infrastructure, housing, you know, every, everything that is flat is built, you know, and, and you can't, and you can't put trails there. And, and you're, you're 100% right with, you know, with the, uh, with the gateway project we were able to do through the trail accelerator grant, we were able to put in some, uh, green level trails, which then, you know, be are super family friendly. Like we, we thought about like, how can you put strollers in here? Right. How can you get people out with strollers? And then it parlayed into adaptive mountain biking and how do we get, you know, how do we get it to where you can fit, you know, people with adaptive mountain bikes on this stuff so they can get that same experience that we do that, you know, and we've, and we have that going on here now too. And that was, you know, a lot of that is due to the trail accelerator grant. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's no question that that, that program has been wildly successful and um, we're, we're rolling out another round of it now and we'll keep doing that. And uh, I, I see other, other funding sort of uh, mechanisms down the pipeline too, because funding is a, is a big piece. And there's now there's more funding for trails uh, than there ever has been. You certainly have to dig around and find it. And that's, you know, something we're putting a huge um, emphasis on is, is finding those sources of funding, whether they're federal or local, regional, state, um, foundations, uh, philanthropists, there, there's, there's a lot of money out there, uh, especially for something that makes people and places happier, healthier, and more prosperous. I mean, it, it's really a no brainer. Yeah. I think the foundations and philanthropists is an area that definitely gets overlooked more times than not, because it's the, it's not the stuff that gets advertised. Right. Most communities that are at a certain size or bigger have a community, some sort of community foundation. You know, and, and to be able to work with, that's another partnership that, you know, is super important once you get that access. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. There's a, yeah, that, um, that trail building ecosystem or the process has a lot of different elements and those relationships really are, are, they're important every step of the way. Well, should we get close to wrapping this thing up? Do you have any closing comments that you want to make or anything as far as like, you're not really racing anymore, but thank yous and whatnot to people that have helped you along the way. Speaking of which, are you still doing Ergon Topic or are you just doing your own thing now? Yeah, no, I, I ride for the, uh, the Topic Ergon team and we ride Canyon bicycles. And um, I rode the Growler here in Gunnison uh, this year, uh, which was a lot of fun. And then went out to Kansas and, and rode the, the, uh, the Unbound Gravel event, the 100-mile race, not the, not the 200 or the 350. And that was quite an experience. Went with our son Cooper, and we had a blast. And uh, I'm racing uh, the Firecracker 50 in Breckenridge on the Fourth of July, just in a couple of days. So it's it's in my blood. I don't know that it'll, it'll ever leave. I like to set a goal and a, a training goal, and I like to I like to train. I like to ride, and my riding has a little bit more uh, snap, if you will, when I know that there's an event coming up. Um, I think I'm going to do the Steamboat Gravel Race. Uh, in Steamboat Springs uh, in, uh, I think that's August 15th. So I've got just enough events out there. And then my wife and I, we do a backpacking trip every summer. I uh, love doing that. But no, the, my relationship with, with Ergon has been fantastic in Topeak. From, and I've, I've been with them now longer than I've been with any other um, partners in racing, even though I'm just kind of a you know, part-time old, old racer guy. Uh, there's plenty like me out there that, that can't seem to get enough. And, um, you know, it's, it's not, it's not about winning. It's about just being out there. And I remember seeing, you know, John Elway being from Colorado, I'm a big Denver Broncos fan. And when he retired, he said, it. he goes, I want to keep playing. I love playing this game, but my body just won't do it anymore. And, you know, that's the thing people talk about retiring on top and going out of winter and all that. And I just, you know, whatever, it, it's more just being there. And I think Michael Jordan, I think he just loved he just loved to compete and, and to be out there playing, whether it was baseball or basketball. And, you know, sure, winning is even better. But, you know, what's better than, than being out there and doing what you like to do? So I still enjoy that part of it. But um, also love to see, you know, I, I get the biggest kick out of seeing people enjoy mountain biking and trails, whether they're kids or seniors or, or anybody along the way. And I mean, we're one big community that has this common bond. And, um, you know, being able to be involved in something that, that helps to, to spread that to more people. And, um, you know, I think I'm really excited about seeing a lot more of, um, you know, the different communities that are, you know, typically been un underrepresented in mountain biking and trails out there and having a great time. So anything that we can do to 
to bring trails to, to places that haven't had trails in the past is going to be really important too. And, and somehow programs for, for bicycles and, and gear um, so that everybody can you know, kind of get a feel for what it's like to, to feel the earth rolling underneath them uh, with their own power. It's pretty, it's pretty special. Yeah. Yeah, it is for sure. Um, I did see it when I was doing a little bit of research before this, before this interview, I did, I was looking at the Gunnison Griller results and I saw that there is a Cooper Weens that finished ahead of you. Oh yeah. He, <laughs> he I never, I, I just, I can't, I can't start hard at all. So he was, he and, he and that crew were gone immediately. And all I can do is, is settle in. And, and if I'm, if I'm lucky, I can hold that same pace all the way through. And, and I get what I get, but yeah, he was, he was several minutes ahead of me, uh, but he crashed in Kansas and I beat him in Kansas because he crashed. So <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. There's a little bit of redemption right there for you. Huh? Yeah, no, it just, it was, we had so much fun road tripping down there together and the race itself was, was different. And um, it was actually kind of odd for me because we were a big group and gravel racing is insane. I mean, it's just nuts. We were a huge group. I look back, I'm like, Oh, we got into some pretty technical, chunky gravel, and all of a sudden there were just six of us, and there was nobody behind us. And the guys like, "Yeah, there was a big crash back there." And I'm like, "Oh, my son was back there." So that was kind of on my mind because I didn't know, you know, until I got to the finish line that, you know, he wasn't injured or something in that crash. So that kind of got into my head a little bit, and and was something different to think about. But um, yeah, it's odd to, to be out there racing against your son, but it's all good. Sounds like gravel racing might be a little bit like road racing where it's safer to be in the front third of the pack and don't go anywhere near the middle of the back. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, it's not as, uh, it's not as fast, um, as, uh, as the road racing, but the surface is so sketchy and maybe the gravel road has two good lines and then you can the washboard <laughs> and that, 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 that unbound, you know, those Flint Hills of Kansas, there was some, you know, barely road roads in that race. It was, and then some chunky rocks and, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy, but it's bike racing. Yeah, exactly. Well, Dave, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day and us getting this thing recorded. It's it's definitely you, you unpacked a lot of stuff here today, and I think it, it'll be good for a lot of people to hear. Yeah, no, great, Josh. Thanks for having me. And um, anybody out there, contact Imba. There's all kinds of different ways to contact us all through the website, and um, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to help you out. We want to hear your suggestions. Um, you know, we're all ears. Uh, we want to help where we can, but we also want to learn where we can too. So, yeah, and I'll have all the Imba contacts in the show notes and everything too for people to click on. And and so there'll be anybody that wants to get a, get a, get a hold of Imba, they can definitely look at the show notes as well. That's great, so. Josh. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Links for the various topics discussed in the show can be found in the show notes. If you like what you've heard. Please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. This podcast has been made possible by Mountain Bike Radio, Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and is an Evolution Trail Services production. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature on Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>